Anthony Apaya is the Lawrence S. Rockefeller University Professor of Philosophy at Princeton University and is affiliated with that university's Center for Human Values. He was raised in Ghana and was educated at Clare College, Cambridge. He is the author of various books and co-editor of Africana, the Encyclopedia of the African and African-American Experience. His latest book, and the one he will discuss this evening, is entitled Cosmopolitanism, Ethics in a World of Strangers. This is a major intellectual enterprise which navigates through a thicket of ideologies that currently reign, ideologies such as, on the one hand, multiculturalism, with its emphasis on radical group differences and the view that all cultures are equally good and true, over against the narrow ideologies of fundamentalist authoritarian groups who assert that only their views and values are acceptable and are true. Apaya seeks to diffuse these extreme positions, arguing for a perspective that recognizes that while group differences are real, that we are all, no matter the culture, the religion, the nationality background, we all share basic human values that unite us. He calls for a radical pluralism, emphasizing, as he says, universality plus difference. And he explores what we owe to one another. We're greatly honored to have him at UCSB this evening. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you K. Anthony Apaya. Um, good evening, everybody. Thank you very much for coming. Um, for those of you who were wondering about the photograph of me that was on the poster, it was taken for a French magazine. That's why I was wearing that funny hat. <laughs> Cosmopolitanism has a long history. It goes back at least to the cynics of the 4th century BC who first coined the phrase cosmopolites, citizen of the world. It was meant to be paradoxical. A citizen, a polites, belongs to a particular polis. In a civilization where Aristotle could argue that the ideal political community, the city-state, would be small enough that its citizens should know each other's personal characters, as he says in the politics, that was a pretty radical idea. It was elaborated by the Stoics, beginning in the 3rd century BC, a fact that was important for its subsequent history. Because the Stoicism of the Romans, from Cicero to Marcus Aurelius, 
proved congenial to many Christian intellectuals when Christianity became the religion of the empire. It's especially ironic that Marcus Aurelius, who tried to suppress the new Christian sect, wrote an extraordinarily personal set of meditations, a philosophical diary written in the second century as he battled to save the Roman Empire from barbarian invaders, that has always attracted Christian readers for the last uh, two, nearly two millennia. Part of the appeal of Stoicism, I think, has always been the way, and part of the appeal of Marcus Aurelius, has always been the way that the Stoic emperor's cosmopolitan convictions echoed St. Paul's insistence that, as he says in the epistle to the Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. I um, should observe parenthetically that it's rather splendid that this is in the epistle to the Galatians because Diogenes was born in Sinope, which happens to be in Galatia. <laughs> so Diogenes the Cynic, who was the first person to say, I am a citizen of the world, is the person who came from the very community that St. Paul is addressing in the epistle to the Galatians. Two strands intertwine in the cosmopolitan tradition. First, the idea that we have obligations that stretch beyond our literal fellow citizens. And second, that we take seriously the value not just of human life, but of particular human lives, which means taking an interest in the practices and beliefs that lend them significance. People are different, and we can learn from our differences. Because there are so many human possibilities worth exploring, we have neither expect nor desire that every person or every society should converge on a single mode of life. Whatever our obligations are to others or theirs to us, they often have the right to go their own way. There will be times when these two ideals, universal concern and respect for legitimate difference, clash. There's a sense then in which cosmopolitan, cosmopolitanism is the name not of a solution but of a challenge. I want to take up today a couple of difficulties for the Cosmopolitan Project. The first is the challenge of thinking of strangers as metaphorical fellow citizens when we can't understand them. Cosmopolitanism faces us then with the strangeness of strangers and the challenge their strangeness uh, poses. And a second problem is taking seriously the fundamental cosmopolitan ideal that we have responsibilities to every human being. Cosmopolitanism not only asks us to accept the strangeness of strangers, but it asks us to recognize the demands of the stranger. These difficulties are human difficulties, and to get a real sense of them, I think it helps to have some concreteness. So let me start with an experience of my own. Uh, I should say this experience is described in a little bit more detail in a piece in, in the New York Times that some of you may have read, so those of you... Those of you who read the New York Times piece uh, from my book uh, will already have heard this story, so uh, that's an invitation for a 30-second snooze for those of you who did that. Uh, my mother and I are seated on a large veranda. From its high ceiling, eight fans are turning at full speed, and a light breeze blows from the garden through the screened openings, and so, though it's hot outside, we don't feel hot. There's a quiet buzz of conversation. Outside in the garden, peacocks screech. We are waiting for the Asantehine, the king of Ashanti. It's a Wednesday festival day in Kumasi, the town where I grew up. 
during which the king will sit here for a few hours and people will come up to greet him, say a few words and pay their respects. By custom on this day, his first greetings will be for members of the royal family. The rest of us will wait our turn and when it comes, each of us will be presented by the royal linguist and summoned up for a word or two of conversation. When I... When my moment comes, I am introduced as my father's son, as a professor at Princeton, and as the bearer of some bottles of Dutch schnapps, which for several centuries has been an appropriate gift for a West African king, and a gift of money, a million sadies, which sounds a lot but is actually about $100. Most people elsewhere would think all this belongs quaintly to an African past, a sense that would have been confirmed if I told you that today began for the king with a visit to the blackened stools of his ancestors. But as we waited for him, there were people talking, taking cells on, calls on cell phones under the whirling fans, and the people who followed me up to greet him were a dozen men in dark suits, representatives of an insurance company. When the chiefs who pass by greet me, they ask about Princeton. They know about Princeton. And the meetings in the office next to the veranda are about 21st century issues. The educational needs of 21st century children, HIV AIDS, and the local university of science and technology. Why is it so easy for a human visitor from anywhere to make sense, despite the strangeness of this place, Asante, where I grew up? Well, one answer, which you'll get from the cultural psychologists, is that the machinery of the mind is the same everywhere. And there must be some sense in which this is true. Uh, Donald Brown, in his book Human Universals, has a fascinating chapter called The Universal People that describes many of the traits we humans share. As with all scholarship, it contains claims that other serious scholars would deny, but it's hard to resist the evidence that, starting with our common biology and the shared problems of the human situation, and granted that we may also share cultural traits because of our common origins, human societies have ended up having many deep things in common. Among them are practices like music, poetry, dance, marriage, funerals, values resembling courtesy, hospitality, sexual modesty, generosity, reciprocity, and a concern for the resolution of social conflict, concepts such as good and evil, right and wrong, parent and child, past, present, and future. A shared human nature allows us to make sense of one another. But my ability to connect with people in a Chinese village, like your ability to figure out what is going on in my hometown, doesn't depend only on what all human beings share. When two normal people meet, they often share not only what all normal human beings share, but a good deal more. That's one result of the constant contact across societies produced by the trade in goods, both physical and symbolic, that now connects us all. The cosmopolitan curious curiosity about other peoples doesn't have to begin by seeking in each encounter those traits all humans share. In some encounters, what we start with is some small thing that two particular people share. Around the world, there are people who are fascinated by astrology, or insects, or the history of warfare, or Zeno's paradox. Interest in none of these things is a human universal. 
I have failed to get people interested in Zeno's paradox in three continents. <laughs> Nevertheless, interests like these can and do connect people across societies, as people who live in the university surely know as well as anyone else. So the points of entry to cross-cultural conversation need only be shared by those who are actually in the conversation. They don't need to be universal. All they need to be is what these particular people have in common. Once we've found enough to share, there's the further possibility that we will be able to enjoy discovering the things we do not share or do not share yet. That's one of the payoffs of cosmopolitan curiosity. We can learn from one another, or we can simply be intrigued by alternative ways of thinking, feeling, and being. Now, one kind of anti-cosmopolitan skeptic says, you're asking us to care about all human beings, but we only care about people with whom we share an identity, national, familial, religious, or the like. And those identities get their psychological energy from the fact that to every in-group, there's an out-group. And the trouble with humanity as an identity is that until the war of the worlds begins, there's no out-group to generate the binding energy that every in-group needs. Humanity isn't, in the relevant sense, an identity at all. Suppose for the moment that all this is right. Still, engagement with strangers is always going to be engagement with particular strangers, and the warmth that comes from shared identity is often available. Some Christians send money to suffering fellow Christians in southern Sudan. Writers, through Penn International, campaign for the freedom of other writers imprisoned around the world. Women in Sweden work for women's rights in southern Africa. Cross-cultural communication can seem immensely difficult in theory when we're trying to imagine making sense of a stranger in the abstract. But the great lesson of anthropology is that when the stranger is no longer imaginary, but real and present, sharing a human social life, you may like or dislike him. You may agree or disagree. But if it's what you both want, you can make sense of each other in the end. Now, I said I wanted to discuss two difficulties. The first was the strangeness of strangers. The second, which I'm going to talk about now, is the scale of the stranger's demands. Here, too, I'd like to start with a story, though this time it's not a real experience of mine, but a fictional one imagined by the great French novelist uh, Honoré de Balzac. In Balzac's Père Goriot, uh, Eugène Rastignac talks to a friend about a question he attributes to Rousseau. This is the passage. Ah, in translation. <laughs> uh, and I did the translation. Do you recall the passage where he asks the reader what he'd do if he could make himself rich by killing an old Mandarin in China merely by willing it without budging from Paris? Yes. Well, bah, I'm on my 33rd Mandarin. <laughs> Don't make a joke of it. Really, if it were proved to you that the thing was possible and that a nod of your head would be enough, would you do it? That's the end of the quote. Rastignac's question is splendidly philosophical. 
Who but a philosopher would place magical murder in one pan of the scales and a million gold louis in the other? And in fact, though Rousseau doesn't seem to have posed this question, Balzac was probably inspired by a passage from another eminent philosopher, the Scotsman Adam Smith. In his Theory of the Moral Sentiments of 1759, Smith writes memorably about the limits of the moral imagination. Smith's argument begins with an imagined earthquake swallowing up, quote, the great empire of China. Surely, he says, a, quote, man of humanity in Europe would be moved to sorrow by news of the event and reflect on its melancholy meaning, perhaps even on its effects on world trade, which is one of Smith's interests. Still, Smith says, once he'd had these feelings and completed these reflections, he would return untroubled to his ordinary life. The most frivolous disaster which could befall himself would occasion a more real disturbance, Smith wrote. And he went on, if he was to lose his little finger tomorrow, he would not sleep tonight. But provided he never saw them, he will snore with the most profound security over the ruin of a hundred thousand of his brethren. To prevent, therefore, this paltry misfortune to himself, would a man of humanity be willing to sacrifice the lives of hundreds of millions of his brethren, provided he had never seen them? Human nature startles with horror at the thought, and the world in its greatest depravity and corruption never produced such a villain as could be capable of entertaining it. But what makes this difference? That's the end of the quote from Smith. How is it, he wonders, Smith wonders, that our passive feelings can be so selfish, while our active principles are often generous? It is not the soft power of humanity it is not that feeble spark of benevolence which nature has lighted up in the human heart that is thus capable of counteracting the strongest impulses of self-love, he concludes. It is a stronger power, a more forcible motive, which exerts itself upon such occasions. It is reason, principle, conscience, the inhabitant of the breast, the man within, the great judge and arbiter of our conduct. Smith asks if we would contemplate doing a great wrong for a small benefit. Rastignac has us wondering if we would do a lesser wrong for a very great benefit. In shifting the example, Balzac has moved from Smith's uh, exploration of moral psychology to a question of basic morality. We need to keep both in mind. If we were to apportion our efforts to the strength of our feelings, we would indeed sacrifice a hundred millions to save our little finger. That's what Smith points out. And if we would do that, this is what Rastignac points out, we would surely sacrifice a single faraway life, the Mandarin, to gain a great fortune. Mandarins die every day, we know, and we aren't moved at all. The test case is China, because for those nearby, reason might not be necessary. A Scotsman would presumably respond to an earthquake in Edinburgh, not with reason, but with passion. He doesn't need reason. It's his ox that's being gored. If you start with this thought, you'll naturally ask whether cosmopolitan talk of what we owe to strangers must remain a sonorous abstraction. Quote, Cosmopolitanism as an ethical commitment strains to extend our concrete realities to include some distance and generalized others who, we are told, 
are our global neighbors. Uh, Robert Sibley has written in a, in a review of a book on globalization in the Canadian Review of Books. The idea, Sibley goes on, might give you the warm and fuzzies, but it's nothing for which you'd be willing to go to war. He's assuming that cosmopolitan moral judgment requires us to feel about everything in the world, everyone in the world, what we feel about our literal neighbors. We can't be intimate with billions, so, he thinks, we can't make the cosmopolitan judgment. But as Adam Smith saw, to say that we have obligations to strangers isn't to demand that they have the same grip on our passions, our sympathies, that uh, as our nearest and dearest. And we'd better start with the recognition that they don't. Taking Smith's answer seriously requires that our cosmopolitanism shouldn't make impossible psychological demands. Robert Sibley's skepticism is a natural response to some of the demands that moral cosmopolitans have recently made. So how much do we really owe to strangers? Here's one answer. To behave in a way that's not seriously wrong, a well-off person like you and me must contribute to vitally effective groups like Oxfam and UNICEF most of the money and property she now has and most of what comes her way for the foreseeable future. That's what the philosopher Peter Unger has argued in a book provocatively entitled Living High and Letting Die. I've cut to the chase. But philosophers have defended such a view in considerable detail. One of uh, Unger's points of departure is a famous analogy previously offered by the philosopher Peter Singer. If I'm walking past a shallow pond and see a child drowning in it, I ought to wade in and pull the child out, Singer wrote. This will mean getting my clothes muddy, but this is insignificant, while the death of the child would presumably be a very bad thing. And Unger has developed various kindred cases to focus our intuition. Suppose you've spent a great deal of your limited time and means in restoring a vintage Mercedes sedan to mint condition with particular attention to the leather upholstery and you pass a hiker with a badly injured foot. Though the injury isn't life-threatening, he'll lose his foot if you don't take him to the hospital. There's nobody else around. Wouldn't you do it, even though the bleeding from his wound would ruin the leather seat that you've just painfully restored. Well, then suppose you've received an envelope from UNICEF asking for a donation for 30 children in a foreign land. If you don't spend $100, they'll die. Tossing the envelope in the trash is presumably, in a similar way, immoral. But of course, if that's true for the first $100 you could give, it's true for the next hundred dollars you could give. That's why Unger concludes that it's seriously wrong not to send to the likes of UNICEF and Oxfam about as promptly as possible nearly all your worldly wealth. You'd have to liquidate your assets and empty your coffers until you could be sure that your losing a hundred dollars was worse than 30 kids dying. Robert Sibley is at the back of the room shaking his head in disbelief. What has gone wrong? in this argument. Let me make first a small but important point. All this talk of mandarins and foreign children can make it seem that Unger's paradox is a special problem for cosmopolitans. It isn't. Forget the starving children of Africa and Asia if you can. 
Wherever you live in the West, there are children's lives to be saved in your own country. There are fewer of them, and saving them will each cost more. But should your response to the drowning child depend on the cost of your suit? There are also, need I mention, adults you wouldn't leave to die in a puddle either. You could give some of them longer lives, lives they want, by paying their medical bills. If you live in a metropolitan area, there are some close by. They are your neighbors. Should you give away most of your money to do so? Philosophers like Unger and Singer would say yes, or at least they would if they didn't think the needs of the starving children elsewhere were more urgent. The problem with the argument isn't that it says we have incredible obligations to foreigners. The problem is that it says we have incredible obligations. Whatever has gone wrong, you can't blame it on us cosmopolitans. How does Unger get us from where we are to where he wants us to be? Well, by starting with a drowning child. No decent person will want to conclude that not muddying my trousers justifies letting a child drown, not even if my suit was hand-tailored in mohair in Savile Row. But to go anywhere with this judgment about a particular case, you have to draw a moral. And clearly how far you can get will depend on exactly which moral you draw. Unger's most extreme statements both require both drawing a very general principle and making some strong empirical assumptions. And I think that both the principle and the assumptions are wrong. So here is a principle that connects the drowning child to Unger's more exotic conclusions. Quote, if you can prevent something bad from happening at the cost of something less bad, you ought to do it. There seems at first no doubt that this principle, which seems, it seems to motivate some of Peter Singer's argument, I'll call the Singer principle, has the consequence that you should save the drowning child. The child's drowning is bad, getting your suit dirty is much less bad, all this I grant. But does our moral response to the drowning child really entail giving away all our worldly wealth? The Singer principle requires you to prevent bad things from happening if the cost is something less awful. Upon reflection, however, it's not so clear that that principle even gets the drowning case right. Saving the child may be preventing something bad, but not saving the child, for all we know, might prevent something worse. After all, shouldn't I be busy about saving those hundreds of thousands of starving children? And wouldn't uh, selling my suit raise a few hundred dollars? And wouldn't ruining it mean I couldn't raise those few hundred dollars? The principle says that if this kid right here has to drown for me to save my suit for sale so that I can save 90 other children, so be it. Though it also leaves me free to let those 90 children die if I can find something worse to prevent. As for the hiker with the bleeding foot, he's plainly out of luck. Why hurt the sedan's resale value, given all the good in the world we could do with the money? The seeming moderation of the claim, in other words, hides a powerful claim. It's really a way of saying you should do the most you can to minimize the amount of badness in the world. Well, I have no idea how I would do that. But there's no reason to think that it involves bankrupting myself to send a large check to UNICEF. There's bound to be at least one thing I can do with the money that would do more good, the problem would be figuring out what that was. The larger point, of course, is that our conviction that we should save the drowning child doesn't tell us why we should do so. 
Our moral intuitions are generally more secure than the principles we appeal to in explaining them. There are countless principles that would get you to save the drowning child without justifying your own immiseration. Here's one. If you're the person in the best position to present something really prevent something really awful, and it won't cost you much to do so, do it. Now this principle, which I think may actually be right, simply doesn't have the radical consequences of the Singer principle. I'm not especially well-placed to save the children that UNICEF has told me about. And even if I were, giving away most of my means would radically reduce my quality of life. Perhaps this principle suggests that Bill Gates should give millions to save poor children from dying around the world. But come to think of it, he does. This principle, I'll call it the emergency principle, is a low-level one that I think is pretty plausible. I wouldn't be surprised, though, if some philosopher came up with a case where the emergency principle gave the wrong answer. That's because figuring out moral principles, as an idle glance at the history of moral philosophy will show you, is hard. I've talked often in, in my work, and I talk a great deal in the book, about values, in part because I think it's easier to identify values than it is to identify exceptionalist principles. One reason that life is full of hard decisions is precisely that it's not easy to identify single principles like the Singer principle that aim to tell you what to do. And even the Singer principle only tells you what to do if you can reduce all values to their contribution to the badness in the world, which is something I seriously doubt. Another reason is that it's often unclear what the effects will be of what we do. We just don't know enough. On the other hand, Many decisions aren't so hard because some of our firmest moral knowledge is about particular cases. I have no doubt at all that I should save the drowning child and ruin my suit. There are many arguments that I may make in defense of that view, especially to someone who is seriously convinced that she was free to let the child drown. But I'm less certain of most of those arguments than I am that I should save the child. The emergency principle may or may not be sound, but it tells me nothing about what I should do when UNICEF sends me a request for money. I think that a cosmopolitan who thinks that every human being matters cannot be satisfied with that. So let's start with the sort of core moral ideas increasingly articulated in our conception of basic human rights. People have needs, health, food, shelter, education, that must be met if they are to lead decent lives. There are certain options that they ought to have to seek sexual satisfaction with consenting partners, to have children if they wish to, to move from place to place, to express and share ideas, to help manage their societies, to exercise their imaginations. And there are certain obstacles to a good life that ought not to be imposed upon them. Needless pain, unwarranted contempt, the mutilation of their bodies. To recognize that everybody is entitled, where possible, to have their basic needs met, to exercise certain human capabilities, as philosophers call them, and to be protected from certain harms is not yet to say how all these things are to be assured. But if you accept that these basic needs ought to be met, what obligations have you accepted? I want to offer some constraints on uh, the correct answer to that question. First, the primary means for assuring these entitlements remains the nation-state. There are a few political cosmopolitans who say they want a world government, 
But the cosmopolitanism I am defending prizes a variety of political arrangements, provided, of course, each state grants every individual what it owes them. A global state would have at least three obvious problems. It could easily accumulate uncontrollable power, which it might use to do great harm. It would often be very unresponsive to local needs, and it would almost certainly reduce the variety of institutional experimentation from which all human beings can learn. Accepting the nation-state means accepting that we have a special responsibility for the life and the justice of our own society. But we still have to play our part in ensuring that all states respect the rights and meet the needs of their citizens. If they cannot, then all of us, through our nations, if they will do it, and in spite of them, if they will not, share the collective obligation to change those states. And if the reason they fail their citizens is they lack resources, providing resources can be part of our collective obligation. This, I think, is a fundamental cosmopolitan commitment. But second, our obligation is not to carry the whole burden alone. Each of us should do our fair share, but we can't be required to do more. This is a constraint, however inchoate, that the shallow pond theorists like Unger and Singer do not respect. The Singer principle just doesn't begin to capture the subtlety of our actual moral thought. A different philosopher's story, this one offered by Richard Miller, makes the point. An adult is plummeting from a tenth-story window. Don't you love philosopher's stories? An adult is plummeting from a ten-story window, and you, on the sidewalk below, know that you can save the person's life by cushioning his fall. If you did so, however, you would very likely suffer broken bones, which would heal, perhaps painfully and imperfectly, over a period of months. Suppose you know this because you are an orthopedic surgeon. <laughs> to Miller, it's clear that, quote, I can do my fair share in making the world a better place while turning down this chance for world improvement. Since the death you failed to prevent is worse than a few months of suffering, the Singer principle, of course, says otherwise. Our ordinary moral thinking makes distinctions that that principle just doesn't capture, however plausible it seems when we first hear it. Now, I agree that it's not easy to specify what our fair share might be, and especially how it is affected by the derelictions of others. Suppose we had a plan for guaranteeing everyone his or her basic entitlements. Let's call the share that I owe in contributing to that process, uh, let's suppose it's paid just for simplicity as a development tax, let's call the share that I owe my basic obligation. Even if we could get everyone to agree on the virtues of the plan, and even if we could determine how each of us, depending on our resources, should contribute his or her fair share, we can be pretty confident that some people wouldn't give their fair share. That means there would still be some unmet entitlements. What is the obligation of those who've already met their basic obligation, who've done their fair share? Is it enough simply to say, well, I know there are unmet entitlements, but I've done my part? After all, the unmet entitlements are still unmet, and they're still entitlements. Third, whatever our basic obligations, they must be consistent with our being partial, as opposed to impartial, in relation to those closest to us, to our families, our friends, our nations, to the many groups that call upon us through our identities, chosen and unchosen, and, of course, 
to ourselves. Whatever my basic obligations are to the poor far away, they cannot be enough, I believe, to trump my concerns for my family, my friends, my country, nor can an argument that every life matters require me to be indifferent to the fact that one of those lives is mine. This constraint is another that the shallow pond theorists are indifferent toward. They think that it's so important to avoid the bad things in other lives that we should be willing to accept for ourselves, our families and friends, lives that are barely worth living. This third constraint interacts, I think, with the worry that I expressed about the second. For if so many people in the world aren't doing their share, and clearly they aren't, it seems to me I can't be required to derail my life to take up the slack left by the derelictions of others. Let me add one final general constraint. Any plausible answer to the question of what we owe to others will have to take account of many values. No sensible account of our obligation to strangers can ignore the diversity of the things that matter in human life. Cosmopolitans, more than anyone else, know this. Imagine a drab totalitarian regime with excellent prenatal health care. After a velvet revolution, a vibrant democracy emerges and freedom reigns. But perhaps because the healthcare system is a little wobblier, or perhaps because some pregnant mothers exercise their newly run right to smoke and drink, the rates of infant mortality are a little higher. Most people would still plump for the velvet revolution. We think the death of a child is a very bad thing, but clearly we don't think it's the only thing that matters. That is part of why the child in the pond isn't an adequate expression of the real complexity of our thinking. What would the world look like if people always spent their money to alleviate diarrhea in the third world and never on a ticket to the opera or a donation to a local theater company or gallery or symphony orchestra or library or what have you? Well, it would probably be a flat and dreary place. You don't need to say, as Unger would invite you to, that the lives of children you could have saved are just worth less than an evening at the ballet. That answer presupposes that there is really only one thing that matters, that all values are measurable in a single thin currency of goodness and badness. It was terribly wrong that slaves were worked to death building the pyramids, or for that matter, building the United States. But it's not therefore terrible that those things were made. Not all values have a single measure. If the founders of this nation had dealt with only the most urgent problem facing them, and let us suppose that that was indeed slavery, they would almost certainly not have set in motion the slow march of political, cultural, and moral progress with its sallies and retreats that Americans justly take pride in. Would you really want to live in a world in which the only thing that anyone has ever cared about is saving lives? Now, I realize that what I have said might seem shocking. I have defended going to the opera when children are dying, children who could be saved with the price of admission. It's perhaps almost as counterintuitive to say this as to say with Unger that we should sacrifice nearly everything else we value to save the poor. So remember, when you go to the opera, others are spending money too, money that could save the same children. You have no special relationship to their deaths, as you would if you ignored my emergency principle. 
Nor is this like willing the Mandarin to death in Rastignac. You're not killing anyone by going to the opera. Part of the strategy of Unger's argument is to persuade us that not intervening to save someone because we have something else worth doing is morally equivalent to killing them in the name of those other values. We should resist that equation. But the shallow pond arguments raise more empirical concerns to which, as I promised, I'll now return. Consider the factual claim that UNICEF can save the lives of 30 children for $100. What does this mean? It doesn't, of course, mean that you can keep them alive forever. Right? Offering to save someone's life isn't offering them an infinite life. Part of the reason that UNICEF or Oxfam, which are both well-run organizations full of well-intentioned people doing much good, can keep sending those letters is that they have to save the same children over and over again. You send the check. Even if your money could be traced to a particular village in Bangladesh, rehydrating 30 particular children who could otherwise have died of their diarrhea, you're not thereby making a serious contribution to the real improvement of their life chances. Death isn't the only thing that matters. What matters is decent lives. And if what you save them for is just another month or another year or even another decade of horrible suffering, have you really made the best use of your money? Indeed, have you even made the world less bad? A genuinely cosmopolitan response begins with trying to understand why the child is dying. It requires knowing that policies that I might have supported because they protect jobs in my state or region are part of the answer. It involves seeing not just a wasted, not, not just a suffering body, but a wasted human life. Once you take seriously the real challenges posed by global poverty, you have to come to grips with hard problems about how money is best spent. Given the results, most development economists would agree that much of the trillion dollars in foreign aid between 1950 and 1995 wasn't well spent. After all, many of the poorest countries in the world have seen incomes fall over that period in inflation-adjusted terms. But that's not a reason for giving up. It's a reason for trying to understand what went wrong and what went right especially in the places like Botswana, where aid really helped, and reapplying ourselves to the task. In recent years, social scientists have increasingly recognized that a crucial constraint on development is weak governance and poor institutions. The Nobel Prize-winning economist Amartya Sen famously showed that while famine can be triggered by nature, by a drought or a plague of locusts, it doesn't occur in democracies. According to a recent study by the economists Craig Burnside and David Dollar, foreign assistance helped development and reduced poverty, but only in countries with decent governments. Institutions of land tenure, which are often entwined with cultural assumptions that may be hard to change, are sometimes at the root of rural poverty. In Asante, where I grew up, land is held by local chiefs in trust for the people. To fertilize, sow, and cultivate my land, I need to borrow. But if I farm on the land at the chief's discretion, how can I secure my debt? Clear title may require reform of land law, establishing reliable land registers, and making the courts more efficient and less corrupt. I know that you will spend money to save starving children, 
but will you pay to promote reform in the design and execution of the land policies that are keeping their families poor, the real cause of their death? I'm not arguing, I don't believe, that we should give up our ha- throw up our hands in despair because it's all so complicated. Nor do I think that because past aid hasn't raised the standard of living in much of Africa, we should abandon attempts to help. We are not in danger of being excessively generous. Indeed, most of us are in no danger of meeting what I called our basic obligation. But what's wanted, as Adam Smith would have anticipated, is the exercise of reason, not just explosions of feeling. Charitable giving in the wake of the tsunami of Christmas 2004 was remarkable and heartening. But two million people die each year from malaria. 240,000 a month die of AIDS, 136,000 of diarrhea. And practical-minded economists, starting with real data, have made arguments that really concerted and well-orchestrated efforts to alleviate poverty in the third world have a good shot at success. US government foreign aid was a little over $16 billion in 2003, and American private assistance to low-income countries was at least $6.5 billion in the same year. The American Development Assistance Budget is the largest in the world. As a percentage of our gross domestic product, however, it's at the bottom of the affluent donor uh, donor nations. Basically, our aid budget is so big because our economy is so big, not because we're more generous. Many poor countries pay more in debt servicing to the United States than they receive in aid. And in turn, much of that aid really takes the form as a result of debt relief. Only a fraction of American foreign assistance is specifically targeted at helping the extremely poor. These negative facts, however, obscure other things, both for better and for worse, that America does. Just to go on on the debit side, U.S. tariffs cost the tsunami-affected countries more in 2004, about $1.8 billion, than U.S. charity will enrich them. Though American trade policies are generally much better for the developing world than those of Europe or Japan. James Wolfenson, the former president of the World Bank, once pointed out, and I quote, the average European cow lives on $2.50 a day subsidy, while 3 billion people live on under $2 a day. On the credit side, America admits many more immigrants than Japan or Europe, and those immigrants send back millions, billions of dollars in remittances, creating at least potentially a savings base for capital and growth. On the debit side again, however, the United States is meeting its health needs, especially those of poor Americans, with a brain drain of doctors and nurses trained usually at public expense from places like India, Pakistan, Ghana, Nigeria, and Jamaica, where they're desperately needed. In thinking about trade policies, immigration policies, and aid policies, in deciding which industries to subsidize at home, which governments to support and arm abroad, politicians in the world's richest countries naturally respond most to the needs of those who elected them. But they should surely be responding to their citizens' aspirations as well. And American attitudes towards foreign assistance is a complicated thing. In surveys, Americans are apt to say that too much is given, and then you ask them to propose an amount, and they mention uh, something like, say, 5% of the federal budget, which is 10 times more than the U.S. actually allocates. Now, I don't claim to know exactly what the basic obligations of each human being are. But if some people lack their basic entitlements, and billions surely do, 
we know that collectively we are not meeting our obligations. The shallow pond theorists are wrong about what we owe, but they are surely right to insist that we owe much more. Faced with impossible demands, we are likely to throw up our hands in horror. But the obligations we have are not monstrous or unreasonable. They do not require us to abandon our own lives. They entail, as Adam Smith saw, clear-headedness, not heroism. Jeffrey Sachs has argued that in 20 years, at a cost of about 150 billion a year, we can eradicate extreme poverty, the poverty that kills people and empties lives of meaning. Now, I don't have the competence to decide whether those numbers are right, but there's reason to think that he's in the right vicinity of the truth. If he is, then the richest nations can together salvage the wasted lives of the poorest human beings by spending collectively less than a third of what the United States spends each year on defense all by itself. Put another way, we could raise the money at about 45 cents a day for each citizen of the European Union, the United States, Canada and Japan, which is a little more than a third of what the average Norwegian is paying already. The average Norwegian is not three times richer than the average citizen of the industrialized world. If we accept the cosmopolitan challenge, we will tell our representatives that we want them to remember these strangers. Not because we're moved by their suffering, we may or may not be, but because we are responsive to what Adam Smith called reason, principle, conscience, the inhabitant of the breast. The people of the richest nations can do better. It's a demand of simple morality, but I think it's one that will resonate more widely if we make our civilization more cosmopolitan. Thank you very much. could be argued that life on Earth, indeed the survival of life on the planet itself, could be considerably enhanced by a halving of the human population. Um, so, by halving the population. Um, uh, no, um, it, well, uh, <laughs> there are many things that could be argued. Um, the question is whether there's a good argument for that view. And more importantly, just to be, uh, if we're in, uh, thinking about sort of imagination and thinking about alternatives, l let me mention an alternative to the proposal that you probably have in mind, um, which should achieve exactly the same effects. Um, because the nutritional needs of human beings are roughly proportional to their, uh, their mass. And their mass is proportional to the cubic root of their height. If we were to reduce people's heights on average <laughs> by that amount, which is, as you can see, less than a half, uh, and assume that uh, their girth would decline proportionately, uh, we could achieve the same result. Um, the main reason why we can't solve the problems of the planet by reducing the population immediately, as it were, in half, is that we'd have to kill a lot of people. Um, and uh, that would be bad. Uh, so, well, I think what we have to figure out, uh, what the sustainable level of the human population on the planet is, of course, depends not just on, it's not a fi fixed number, it depends on technology and it depends on how they're living, what they're consuming, and so on. Um, I do think, I continue to think, but this may be just because I grew up in the 60s, that uh, as we head towards nine billion people, that 
I hope that we realize that that has to, that has to um, shade off at some point. Uh, we, we, I mean, we are going to run out of space eventually, uh, and long before we have uh, colonized even the moon, let alone uh, the nearest habitable planet, whatever that is. So um, I think we do have to worry about that, and it's, it's a good example of a problem uh, of a sort that I, that I wasn't talking about today, but has to do uh, with, a, with, again, another kind of problem that our politics isn't handling very well, uh, which is the problem of our responsibilities to future generations. I mean, we do... Population policy has to be thought of in the context of our obligations to, to future people. We, we shouldn't be leaving people a planet that is, uh, in which people can't live de decent lives. And again, that isn't just about numbers. That's about things like where you put the nuclear waste, what species you allow to disappear, and so on. Wonderful discussion. Thank you very much. Yes, ma'am. You could argue that cosmopolitanism can only really authentically come out of a kind of spontaneous um, intuition, feeling that arises from within each of us. And yet you could argue that, no, you need to, we need to morally exhort our, our fellow citizens to see this need. And even more, we need governments to make policy decisions. Um, would you comment on the, um, on the problem, maybe? Or how do you, how do you actually um, put some sort of, use moral persuasion that isn't coercive and destructive to that spontaneous desire to help? Great. That's a, that's a, that's a terrific question. I mean, I think um, part of the answer really, and, and th I didn't make this argument here, but, it, but I do try to make it in the book. Uh, part of the answer has to do with talk about a cosmopolitan civilization. Um, in order to care about these things, we have to be, I think, imaginatively engaged with li the lives of people, with, with the lives of strangers. And I think one of the great mechanisms of that kind of imaginative engagement is through, um, through, through literature and the arts, actually. Um, I've, I've uh, been traveling around in bookshops and so on the last few weeks trying to get people to buy this book. Uh, but, but, um, and so I've, uh, in the course of that time, I've uh, discovered some, some uh, maxims that I'd like to recommend to people. And one of them is, uh, you should see, uh, if you see movies at all, you should make sure that uh, every month you see at least one which has subtitles. Um, which has subtitles. Uh, <laughs> Um, the, the, and I say that in part in response to experiences of my own I talk about one of these in the book uh, seeing an Afghan movie about, about a young girl who for obvious reasons as you'll see it's unfortunate was called Usama um, so the film is called Usama and you come maybe thinking that it's about a different Usama uh, but it's about a little girl in Afghanistan and it's about what happened it's, it's a work of fiction, but it's about what happens to this girl and her mother, who's a doctor, under the Taliban. And if, if anybody has a kind of abstract concern or understanding of what the Taliban, what, what was bad about the Taliban, this movie can give them a very concrete sense of something that was very bad about it. Um, and then the other day, I, I, I saw another a movie, an, actually, believe it or not, an Iran-Iraq co-production. Um, so... Whoever it is that's representing uh, the National Security uh, Agency tonight should know that I'm endorsing the seeing of Iran-Iraq productions. Uh, but it's not a political movie at all. It's a, it's a 
it's, it's, a, it's a work of imagination, about the lives of some children in a, in a Kurdish refugee camp in northern Iraq during the first Iraq war. And I repeat, it's not about politics. It's about the lives of these children. It's very moving. And I, again, for me, Kurds are not abstract anymore because of this movie. Um, so I think that, I really do think that here is a place where, where, where literature and the arts have a very powerful potential. And that means that, there's a, therefore, education has a great potential uh, if, we, if we make our educational system more cosmopolitan, if we expose people more to uh, these, what, the full range of wonderful uh, cultural work that's produced by human beings, I think we can, um, we can, it makes it easier for people to, to, to get along. And notice that what's crucial about the kind of imaginative engagement that we have with literature is that it doesn't require us to either to become like what's represented, it doesn't, we don't have to become like uh, either Usama in order to profit from the experience. Um, nor do we have to, um, we can be changed by it without changing ourselves very much. That is, without changing our own view about what it is to lead a decent life. We come to understand, nevertheless, what somebody else conceives of a decent life, how they understand the world, and that understanding allows us to engage with them, to rub along with them, to live in the world with them, without insisting on agreement, without insisting that um, we should all become the same. And that, as I say, that for me, those are the two fundamental elements of cosmopolitanism. One is a sense of responsibility for all human beings, and the other is um, a recognition, even a, perhaps a celebration, of the fact that decent human lives come in many, many forms, and that there's no necessity for uh, coming to agree about how to live, uh, even though... Uh, we need to understand perhaps how other people want to live in order to live in the world with them. We don't have to come to agree with them. The point of conversation, in other words, isn't consensus. It's understanding, and that's a different thing.